The members of the Uncontrolled Airspace podcast are participating as private individuals. Their comments do not necessarily reflect the views of the various organizations they work with. Also, anything you hear on this podcast that sounds like advice on aircraft operation is obviously very general. You should always consider your own situation, remember your training, and fly the airplane. But you knew that. Okay, then. You ready? Red eye. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Vroom. Welcome, folks, to episode number 50, Big Five Zero of Uncontrolled Airspace, the General Aviation Podcast. We're recording this episode on Wednesday evening, October 10, and uh, it's kind of an odd <laughs> evening here already. Uh, we've been talking That's for right. a few minutes before we started recording, and it already has an odd feel to it. I, it's it's going to be interesting to see where this one goes. Uh, not the least <laughs> of the problem being that Dave is apparently out of beer, uh, which... You know that this is going to be a special test case just on that basis this, alone. This is this is a crisis. That's right. That's it's, right. It, 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 it's actually causing me to 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 sit on the ceiling and 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 hold on with my nails and and try to keep the headset on. That's a picture I'd like to see. Well, going well, going cold turkey here in the virtual hangar are uh, are my two friends. Jeb Burnside is here. Jeb is an aviation journalist, currently serving as the editor in chief of Aviation Safety Magazine, and also as a contributing editor to Avweb Biz. And he's talking to us from his home and office in Sarasota, Florida. Hi, Jeb. How you doing? I'm fine, Jack. Thank you for that intro, and uh, uh, welcome to all of our listeners. Um, and uh, looking forward to another uh, episode. Um, before you know, I, I get to be the one to do it because I was introduced first. Okay. Before we go any further, uh-huh. tonight tonight's episode uh, marks a milestone. This is our fiftieth podcast episode. What a concept, huh? Yeah. Right. Yeah, um, I didn't think we'd live a day over fifteen. That's right. So we will soon be eligible for Social Security if there is any left. <laughs> um, but uh, uh, I, I, it's because we're going to turn this into a profit-making thing, one way or the other, right? What come hell or high water? That's exactly right. But uh, um, it, it's it says a lot for our own individual perseverance, but also for uh, uh, and especially and, and perhaps uh, primarily for. Uh, the great feedback we've been getting from our listeners and uh, the support we've been getting from them also and uh, keeps us going and uh, keeps us uh, interested in doing this every week. Absolutely. We really do appreciate it. Yeah. And uh, speaking of we never thought they'd make it to 50. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> All right. My other, scores first. My other friend here in the virtual hangar is Dave Higdon. Dave is an aviation photographer, a senior editor at Kit Planes Magazine, and the U.S. editor for London's World Aircraft Sales Magazine. How you holding up, Dave? You going to make it through the evening without your beer? I'm going to make it through the evening. I got the walker handy and a cane and crutches in case everything falls apart here. But uh, I see. Okay, good. Good, and uh, let me uh, you know echo a little bit of what Jeb said. Uh, in particular, the, the 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 reason we're still here, and, and and a lot of gratitude to all you patient people out there that take the time to listen to us and holler back at us and let us know that we're not just talking to our mothers and the great empty ether of some server somewhere. That's right. That's right. And and, and we do appreciate all the email that people send us. Um, uh, just a reminder: uh, there's also a blog on the website, and uh, and you can and and we post occasional little uh, news items or comments or things about aviation in the blog. And and anyone can add a comment to postings in the blogs. So that's another way that you can kind of participate and talk back and forth. And people do do that from time to time. We'd love to have more of you join us uh, in the comments area of the blog. And hopefully we're going to add a forum area, which is more of a straightforward discussion area sometime soon. But that's... Is, that's when we add a forum, does that mean we have to start doing this in a toga? Yeah. I'm sorry, you didn't get the memo, apparently. Oh, man. I've got sandals, but the toga that's, is going to be... That's too much information. I may have an old waterbed sheet around here that'll work. And I am Jack Hodgson. I am a, <laughs> a private pilot, a freelance writer, and a new media producer. I'm up here in Boston, Massachusetts. Oh, Dave, of course, everybody knows Dave's in Wichita, Kansas. I forgot to say that. Dave, in uh, 
Still in Wichita after all these years. That's right. The great. I'm trying to come up with a great catchphrase for Wichita because I, you know, I'm not sure how many people realize that Wichita is just a terrific aviation town. I well, mean, you could use what the locals use. What's that? Air capital of the world. There we go. Air air capital of the world. Okay, I'm going to write that down. Because no, we've only got beach, which is now officially Hawker Beach. Uh, Beechcraft, and we've got Cessna here, and we've got a Boeing military airplanes uh, uh, maintenance and, and, and mod operation here. We've got Spirit Aerospace that was uh, Boeing Wichita's airliner uh, subassembly operation until they spun it off a couple of years ago. Uh, and then we've got our good friends over at uh, Bombardier uh, building Learjets and doing flight tests for all the Bombardier line. Uh, and that's just the you know that's just the uh, the OEM the airframers. Uh, we've also got uh, uh, operations here from um, Pratt and Whitney and and uh, Honeywell and uh, Bendix King and Garmin and 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 hundreds of little shops that contribute to all these. And then down in Independence, Kansas, they build the Cessna piston line and the Mustang. And up in Hayes, Kansas, is where Rands builds its experimental and light sport aircraft. And uh, other than that, nobody pays any attention to airplanes here. <laughs> How did that all happen? I mean, was that just because the Cessna guys and the and the and the you know those early manufacturing folks happened to live there, or is there something about the area that makes it conducive to aviation? Uh, it, it's kind of one of the mysteries, and, and local historians will give you different variations of basically the same facts. Uh, you know, they credit Clyde Cessna with first planning the idea of building airplanes here when he flew his uh, silver wing, I believe he called it. Uh, it was kind of a knockoff that he built from a kit of, of the uh, Demoiselle. Uh, and he built it down in, in, in Oklahoma. He was from Riga, Kansas. He built the airplane down in Oklahoma and, and, and tried to fly it up here to show it to some uh, uh, petroleum and agricultural uh, businessman who had money to invest, and after crashing about eleven times, uh, <laughs> am I kidding? Uh, you know, he, I should uh, laugh because I would have done the same thing. But well, you know that's the way they taught us to hang glide when I learned to hang glide thirty years ago. Is you carried the wing up the hill and you ran down the hill until it lifted off, and between when it lifted off and when it crashed, you learned to fly. Right, and. Uh, you know, we survived with knee pads and wheels on on the base tube, and old Clyde survived, and because uh, nothing flew very fast, uh, and planted the seed here. And some other guys looked at the available labor force, a lot of farm workers that uh, were engaged in heavy maintenance, and uh, a good supply of people that were good at woodworking. And uh, it attracted several companies uh, that were never memorable. Uh, then Lloyd Stearman, Clyde Cessna, and Walter Beach got together. They both worked for some other people along the way and had some experience of their own. They got together and formed a company called Travel Air. Mm -hmm. And the Travel Air mystery ship won some races. Uh, then that got sold and... Walter and, and his uh, new bride, uh, Olive Ann Beach, uh, went off on East Central in Wichita. And uh, in another abandoned airplane factory, they started Beach Aircraft in 1932. Uh, Cessna had restarted his airplane company with uh, actually a, a nephew had restarted the airplane company in 1927. Here in Wichita, mm -hmm. uh, we had Al and Art Mooney building airplanes here in the 30s, Culver Aircraft here in the 30s. Uh, up his uh, well, training company here. Didn't a bunch of them like work for the Cessna guys and then and then spun out, right or not? Well, it? yeah, so there was some back and forth there. I mean, uh, you know, when you got Walter Beach, uh, Clyde Cessna, and Lloyd Stearman together as the principles of one company. Imagine yeah, the cross-pollination that was going on there. Yeah. Uh, uh, Stearman was building trainers for the military uh, down on, on Oliver, south side of Wichita, uh, when in uh, American, what it was, a United Air and Transport, which was this conglomerate formed by uh, the, the merger and acquisitions that totaled up, you had United Airlines, Boeing Airplane Company, uh, Pratt & Whitney Engines, Hamilton Standard Propeller, and 
Stearman Aircraft to build mm. trainers. Mm-hmm. Now, that conglomerate got broken up under antitrust laws later on. And when that happened, Stearman went with Boeing. And uh, it, during before and during World War II, they produced about 8,000-plus of those Stearman aircraft that we're all familiar with. With seeing them at air shows and as crop dusters and at Oshkosh, and, right? You know, they're they're probably one of the most common warbirds in the country. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, that that's kind of the short form is how Wichita grew to be an aviation company. Uh, I mean, it's carried over farther in 1961, I believe it was. Uh, Bill Lear decided to move his uh, uh, fledgling business jet company from Switzerland to Wichita, and they built the first prototype and built a factory and certified the Lear 23 here in 63, so we've added to it in more modern times. Uh, Piaggio used to build fuselages here for the P-180 Avante uh, for several years until that program started to tank. That was in the 90s. Uh, we've had a number of other companies look at getting in here, but uh, labor market is kind of competitive as it is, and uh, uh, it, it, and and the local companies are so well entrenched in the local business community and politically that uh, you don't really see the kind of offers of help coming from the Wichita area that you that you're seeing right now, for example, with Piper. And the rumors that they may move out of Vero Beach or just move the Piper jet production out of Vero Beach. Mm-hmm. And you got communities, you know, offering up tens of millions of dollars in incentives and land deals and and uh, uh, industrial revenue bonds uh, to to help defer the cost and the taxes. And uh, when an airplane company from out of town expresses interest in uh, in Locating in or near Wichita, you know, the kind of message that you feel out in the uh, vibration of the grapevine is, sure, come on in, take a look around and let us know what you'd like, you know, what where you'd like to settle. Mm-hmm. And that's pretty much, you know, we'll show you <laughs> some places and uh, uh, conversely, and this is the same in, in almost any community, mm-hmm. if one of the established majors wants to expand, uh, they can trot out the uh, the accountants and, and the bond people and go down and get uh, uh, industrial revenue bonds approved uh, that most of them then in turn buy themselves and get tax abatements for new factories and new factory equipment and uh, make it as painless as possible for the indigent companies to add more jobs. Yeah. Makes it tough for an outsider to break in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you, I've always I've always thought though that the real answer to the question of why Wichita has become the air capital is it because comes. it was so damn far from anywhere else <laughs> <laughs> that you had to build an airplane to get out of there, <laughs> and you had to have an airplane to get there. One of the old stories about why the movie industry settled into Los Angeles was because it took like three days for a check to clear back in the banks in New York. And uh, and the in movie industry, which was always struggling from one day to the next with financing, found that to be very appealing. I don't know if that's related. That and cheap land and really good shooting weather. I always thought that was the answer, yes, that it had to do with days of sunlight. Because back in the early days, of course, they didn't have all this fancy electric lighting. And so they needed daylight to light the scenes. But someone told me, no, it's because the checks took so long to clear. <laughs> I thought it had to do with all the... the uh, uh, well, never mind. I don't uh, know. See, I Chicken and the egg thing, Jeb. Chicken and the egg. It's uh, which Thank came you. first? Which Thank came you. first? Yeah. Thank you very much. Yeah. Thank you very much. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so, you're here all uh, week, right? But now I'm here all week. Try the veal. So don't. So come let's see what's in the news here. Uh, this is following up on a story that we talked. I think we talked about on the podcast some time ago, which was in Florida. The town of Jacksonville, Florida, was um, sort of lost their mind and was trying to stop people from home building airplanes in their in their garages. And uh, and I'm happy to report that Avweb is reporting or reported I think a, a week or so ago that uh, the town of Jacksonville, Florida has uh, come to their senses. I'm reading from the Avweb story here with a unanimous vote, the City Council of Jacksonville, Florida, last week overturned its ban on working 
in, on airplanes in residential areas. Um, Milford Shirley, the president of the local EAA chapter, said he was absolutely happy with the decision. The EAA chapter had been fighting the ban since it was imposed over a year ago after some neighbors complained that a home builder was keeping an airplane in his driveway. Um, then the quote says, uh, we can imagine the outcry from the public if Jacksonville passed a rule saying residents couldn't work on automobiles or boats or motorcycles in their homes. That's Earl Lawrence from EA's, the EA's Vice President of Industry and Regulatory Affairs. Um, Who's a listener and has written to us a, a, a few right. times to keep and, us up to uh, speed on things. So as a result of some patience, the story says, and a lobbying effort, um, the city apparently came to its uh, came to see things the EAA way, and the council voted 15 to nothing to overturn the ordinance. So it wasn't even a close I, thing. They really did I think kind that's, of... That's a really significant vote. I mean, I can understand some some hardcore ne'er-do-wells on that city council holding out, you know, say, oh, no, we don't think they should be building no dang airplanes in our city. But, um, no, they they reversed it totally. And uh, hats off to EAA for for their perseverance and, and um, a unanimous yeah. win. Yeah. And, and and particularly hats off to the, uh, to the council down there in Jacksonville for being open-minded and reasonable and 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 uh you know not getting their back up and 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 getting defensive because somebody approached them with a a, a contrary idea to the action they took so good for the council good win for eaa good win for the locals there in jacksonville of course if they'd the been a little bit more heavy water if they'd been a little bit more open-minded the first time around we wouldn't be wasting our time talking about this tonight well, that could well be true, but you know, mo- most of us don't pay attention to what's on city council agendas from one week to the next. No, that's true. And and you know, you get one of these things on a first reading, and maybe the next week a second reading, and it barely, you know, rates a mention in any newspaper coverage, and until somebody complains, of course, and mm-hmm. then you know, live at five is there. Where were you beforehand? Uh, so sometimes you know, it's it's. You don't see these things coming unless you got somebody that keeps an eye on city council agendas and and and, and neighborhood uh, uh, com- compliance teams where they got a lot of codicils and owners associations and so forth. Uh, you know, it can just come out of the blue. So, mm-hmm. fortunately, we don't have to talk about it anymore. That's right. Yes, that's right. Indeed. What else is going on here? Let's see. Now, last week on the podcast, we were talking about uh, keeping, you know, using common sense when you're out doing fall foliage sightseeing flights. And mm-hmm. uh, we got email from, and, and then so I kind of wandered off into the bushes here talking about. Uh, uh, <laughs> no, no pun intended. Sighting, well, there, there, sighting moose and, and, and yeah. you know, and deer and bears and stuff from the air and the hazards involved Lions in that. And tigers and bears. All right. Oh, so, why? but I'm not, I wasn't completely in left field about this to mix my metaphors. Um, because uh, there's that baseball stuff again. We got a uh, we got a uh, uh, email from a listener, uh, Brian from Gold River, California, wrote in saying, uh, "In your last episode, you talked about the potential hazards of of flight seeing. By the way, that's I like that term. I'd never heard that before. That is, that is a good term. Yeah, for flight flight yeah. seeing. He said specifically flight seeing to enjoy the fall colors. In the conversation, you talked about watching moose from the air. Well, believe it or not, pilots in Alaska refer to a kind of light airplane accident they called a they call a moose stall. They apply this term to an accident that results from a pilot not managing the flight path of his or her aircraft while preoccupied with an item on the ground, whether or not there's an actual aerodynamic stall involved. So see, this may be what I'm remembering. I, you know, it's something that, this is kind of a known hazard. I mean, we're not, not kidding around here. The idea no, that no. you go out and fly circles around you know, wildlife that you see on the ground um, is, is, uh, is, a, is a known danger. And uh, whether well, I, you know, I did some searching on the net trying to figure out whether, whether I could find any reference to either a formal or informal flight procedure um, and I couldn't but but uh, Brian from Gold River California tells us there is such a thing as what's called a moose stall uh, so you got to be careful about this stuff sure and, uh, I didn't bring it up last week because it uh, not one of the more pleasant memories and <laughs> because I, you had beer last week uh, maybe that's it uh, sigh <laughs> uh, but uh, uh, longtime local pilot uh, owned owned a restaurant here very popular with the local aviation community uh a few years ago was out with one of his closest friends uh pretty much due east of the wichita area about 55 60 miles 
And about 60 miles east of here, where I'm sitting, the terrain drops off fairly rapidly into river bottom from what they call the Flint Hills to uh, uh, more like bottomland with a lot of trees. It goes from prairie to forested, and there's about a 250-300 foot elevation drop in about a mile and a half or two miles. Uh, at least on the highway, that's how long it takes. And my uh, my friend and his buddy were out scouting uh, for deer ahead of deer season in uh, my friend's 182. And, you know, this is a, a, a four-figure hours pilot. He's been flying most of his life in his 70s. Uh, very lean, very active, robust gentleman. Uh, they got focused on some movement apparently on the ground and didn't notice that the winds that they were flying in, they were doing a circle over a spot, turned about a point, was drifting them farther and farther to the west until they hit near the uh, upper part of the escarpment. Apparently when they started following a group of deer, they were about two and a half miles farther east-southeast. Mm-hmm. And they got to watching the deer mm-hmm. yeah. as they flew the circles. Yeah. And the drift took them right into the escarpment. Yeah. No survivors. Oh, man. And, oh. Uh, uh, you know, it's and, – and we've seen it in some other instances, uh, uh, folks out – I like the term, too – flight seeing, yeah. who forget things like minimum altitudes because they're out where really nobody's going to see them. And uh, – don't notice that, you know, hidden in the trees that are just about to shoot a gap between is a real thin strand of wire. Yeah. It, 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 it is supported by two telephone poles or utility poles that are hidden by the trees. So you got a couple of hundred foot gap there in the tree line and a wire or two that just is virtually invisible until you hit it. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, you know, seriously, folks, be careful out there. Be yeah. mindful of what you're doing. Uh, you know, be mindful of the drift. Uh, if you're going to set the airplane up in a in a, a standard rate turn, it wouldn't hurt to trim the nose up just a skosh. Mm-hmm. So at least, you know, you know, if you're busting the altitude that you wanted, you're doing it positively and not negatively. Yeah. Right. Years ago in Flying Magazine and there, um, I learned about flying from that uh, feature. Uh, there was a, a guy who wrote in um, story about his, his one, one day, one afternoon out soaring. And apparently, he was in a you know, pretty good, he pretty pretty well experienced to soaring and pretty decent sailplane, and and was out and and uh, got in flying formation with a hawk or an eagle or or some some large bird. Mm-hmm. And uh, the hawk knew he was there, and, and uh, the two of them were just kind of flying around and, and soaring and diving and turning and, and all this kind of thing. And then just the afternoon went on, and they were just having a blast. And then it suddenly dawned on the pilot flying the sailplane that the bird was leading him further and further away from his glider port. And the sun was starting to go down, and, and the thermals were starting to subside, and and uh, he wasn't going to make it home. Uh huh. And the and about the time he realized this, the bird kind of like you know almost figuratively waved at him and smiled. And <laughs> so he, long, sucker. <laughs> so long, sucker. Exactly right. And of course, the 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 the, the pilot managed to make get the sailplane back. Uh, banged it down on the first, you know, ten feet of the runway at the home drum. Didn't have to touch the spoilers all the way home, but um, of course he ended the thing with. And I'm sure that that bird is still out there grinning as he <laughs> as he thermals around looking for other sailplanes. So, uh, yeah, I mean that's a humorous bent on the same problem. And the same problem is fly uh, the airplane. Losing situational awareness. Yeah. Situational awareness. Being aware gotta, of where you are. Got to fly the airplane at all times. I mean, I think it, last week it was your specific advice, Jeb, and I think it's good, is that is if you're in this kind of a flight-seeing situation or any sort of piloting situation, make sure at least one person on board is the designated pilot. And, uh, you know, if, the, if a bunch of people are looking out the window, somebody's still got to be flying the airplane. Yeah, I, I remember, just to give you a, a for-instance example, um, 
years ago, this would have been in the early 80s to date myself one more time, I was flying a, a four-reel uh, CAP search and rescue mission. And there were uh, two or three other guys with me. We were in a Skyhawk. Um, I knew all the guys. Uh, we were out looking around for this, this wreckage of, a, I believe it was a Super Cub. And uh, in our little quadrant of the sky, uh, we saw some white material on the ground against a fence line, which is just a, you know, a perfect place for, uh, I should say, a tree line and a fence and everything, which is a perfect place for you know, somebody to maybe in bad weather try to set down and uh, couldn't see what was really that far in front of him and rolled down the, this field and kind of rolled up the airplane into this, in this tree line. So from our altitude, we really couldn't see enough detail of this white material on the ground to, to make heads or tails of it. So the three of us orbited uh, you know, at the same altitude. One, you know, I think I was left seat. I don't remember. Um, orbited this area, and uh, we talked to each other and said, all right, this is the procedure we're going to do, we're going to use. We're going to fly out to the, uh, to the east. We're going to descend and turn. We're not going to go lower than X number of feet. We're going to turn, and we're going to make a beeline back for this white material. Um, the observer was in the back seat on the right side of the airplane. The front seat observer was also obviously on the right side of the airplane. So we're going to make the pass uh, to the left of this material so that the right seaters uh, can look down on this material and get a better view of what it is. We're going to do this at such and such an airspeed, and once we get to such and such a point, we're going to add full throttle, and we're going to climb out of here. And that's exactly what we did. It turned out to be, you know, like a, a white tarp or, or something like that. It was not an airplane or airplane parts or anything like that. But you've got to think these things through. Mm -hmm. And uh, if you don't, well, hey, you know, you can, you can wind up in an escarpment uh, 60 miles west of Wichita or 60 yeah. miles east of Wichita. And remember, flying's painless. Sudden stops hurt like hell. <laughs> That's right. Dave, I've heard you talk a number of different times about all the careful planning that goes into putting together an air-to-air -air photo shoot. So it's kind of the same thing, I guess, right? I mean, to a certain degree, yeah. I mean, uh, you need to take into, in, into account the terrain you're flying, the circumstances, uh, and what you're out there to do. I mean, where my friends pranged into an escarpment... Uh, is where there's a dramatic terrain change in a very uh, short linear distance. But if you were doing the same thing out in parts of western Kansas, uh, there's nothing out there to hit. I mean, if you started circling at 4,500 feet near Hayes and let yourself drift all the way to the Colorado line 100 and some odd miles away, you might hit the ground out there. Yeah, but you'd notice how far you drifted before that. Other than tall towers, there's nothing out there to, to hit. Uh, so maintaining 500 feet, uh, you know, you can do that all day long. You still want to watch for traffic, and you do want to know where those towers are because there's some out there. Yeah. Uh, in doing some sightseeing with people in ultralights down in the Chattanooga area where I used to live, where uh, only the only the river bottoms and valleys are, are flat in the mountaintops. And in between, you know, there's a lot of mountain. Uh, you really, really work on your, on your uh, clearance skills there. And that's a place where I logged uh, a lot of hang gliding time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And a lot of that hang gliding was ridge soaring, where we're in very close proximity to trees and, 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 and rock faces. Uh, but we're only doing it at like 25, 26 miles an hour. Uh, if the wing's maneuverable enough, uh, getting a wingspan away from a rock face and, and riding the heat wave coming off of it is perfectly safe. But you remember a few things at all times. You never turn toward the ridge. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. Right. Okay. Well, you, you get you could plan with little thermals out there. And depending on how you enter the thermal, you can find yourself drifting and turning toward the ridge. Well, if you're climbing like a scalded dog, it's no big deal. Uh, you know, that terrain will be passing underneath you pretty comfortably, and you'll feel like you've stepped into a moving elevator. Uh, but if it's really weak, 
you can be drifting faster than you're climbing and you know lo and behold you can be looking at some trees that while it's nice and sticky and will hold you up or a real bear to get down from let alone get the wing down from when we do air to air preps uh you know there's a whole whole little briefing that we go through between the pilot of the beauty airplane the pilot of the photo platform and me Mm -hmm. Uh, And if there's an observer or an extra body in either of the aircraft, you know, we want them in on it, too. Uh, Having an an observer in the beauty airplane is kind of a nice thing because that's an extra set of eyes to make sure that we don't drift towards something that we didn't intend to. Uh, The photo platform pilot can do that to a large degree, too, but he's got to keep his instrument scan into holding the turn rate and the pitch up or pitch down that I've asked for. Uh, So he's not an ideal candidate. And me, I'm not looking at anything but that other airplane out there. Uh, But we do a whole whole briefing on speeds that we're going to fly, RPMs, because I like the RPM up on the beauty airplane. makes it easier to get a blurred prop. Uh, uh, Definitions of some hand signals. And uh, uh, what happens, what to do if the beauty airplane, for any reason, loses sight of us, mm-hmm. which happens occasionally. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, as long as everybody stays on the same page, everybody follows the, the uh, lead-in and lead-out directions on turns and, and, uh, and climbs, then everything works swimmingly. Uh, if somebody isn't homed in and here's start a standard rate, right turn when you said start a standard rate left turn but uh, depending on which side they're on that 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 could really ruin your shit yeah or something else <laughs> or something else how often this is totally apropos well not apropos of nothing but off the subject how often do you lose gear out of the out of the door when you're doing these photo shoots uh i can't say never but very, very rarely. You must have a whole system for for tying things down and strapping yeah. down your bags, and I got you know, and it depends a little bit on the airplane I'm using. Because you often uh, don't shoot out an open window, right? You'll take the door off, right? And, and <laughs> I know I'm, that's right. No, right? no, I'm thinking of of Dave shooting out an open window, yeah. and he'll know he'll know exactly what I'm talking about. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. Story yeah, here? When, uh, Can you share? J- Jib and I were on our way back from AOPA in Long Beach a few years ago, and we were routing toward El Paso because of some weather. And as it turned out, El Paso was as far as we got that day because of weather. But we were motoring along, fat, dumb, and happy. And, and truth be told, I think Jib was napping over in the left seat, and I was minding the radios. I, uh, and I saw some scenery out the right window. Now, Jib's Debbie has vent windows Built into both the left and right front windows, side windows there. Yeah. Uh, Unlike a lot of airplanes that only have one on the pilot side, there's one on the passenger side in his Zebby. So without really thinking or saying anything, I just popped that window open to take a shot with my little camera. Of course, when you do that, all hell breaks loose in the cabin. You know, the decibel level goes up about uh, uh, 60 dB. Yeah. Uh, There's the sound of, you know, wind (laughs) whipping around. And if Jeb hadn't been strapped down, he'd have a clearance dome in the overhead of his debonair (laughs) right now. Startled you, huh? You thought you were losing. We're going down. He was awake. I, did, I was not asleep to begin with, nevertheless. <laughs> no, he wasn't asleep. He was checking the back of his eyeballs. I, I waited until Dave finished taking his picture and, and closed the <laughs> window and secured the camera and settled back and suggested to him in a rather strong tone that the next time he wanted to do that, he should freaking tell the pilot. <laughs> Before he did it. My first ever passenger, like a million years ago when I learned how to fly, my first ever passenger, um, a, a, a lady friend of mine, and we were out flying over the, the coast of the Pacific, the shoreline of the Pacific Ocean, and uh, she wanted to get a better peek out the window. This is a Cessna 152, which if you know 152s, they have these windows that are hinged at the top and they have this little latch at the bottom. 
Right, and, uh, and a little retraining, and a little retraining strap, which is good um, because because she just kind of wanted to get a better look, and she just kind of you know sort of turned to me simultaneously with the act. She said, "I'm opening the window," and she popped this little latch. All right, you know, and I knew from reading the you know being just recently a student or that that it was okay to open the windows in flight. You know, but I also you know she was quite surprised at the amount of noise that was involved in this whole action, and you know it scared well, and- her pretty good. And I'm going, "It's okay, calm down, calm down." Just we take the uh, we don't take do the, that again. All right, and uh, we take the screw out of the restraining strap on uh, Cessnas uh, all the time to shoot out the window. Yeah, because all that happens is that that window the win- will it lift pivots up and open and, and hangs parallel to the bottom of the wing. Yeah, yeah, like airflow the, sucks it up there. Like the Cub windows will do, right? right. Yeah, yeah, and uh, it makes a pretty good uh, shooting opening, particularly in older Cessnas with the low back bucket seats that will fold flat onto the seat bottom. Then you can sit on that puppy backward. Uh-huh. You know, it, you get in the back seat and then fold the seat down. You can sit in it backward, and it's a much more comfortable shooting position for shooting out of a 172, 182. I've even done it out I've done it out of 150s. Uh, you know, you kind of have to hunch yourself down a little bit because it's not a very tall cabin. Yeah, I was going to say, that, that works great. Picture I'd like to see also. But here, here's, here, you, you touched on a subject here that uh, might be a good interactive opportunity for us. Yeah. And, and that is, you know, I've had my share of, of windows and doors in Cessna 150s, 152s, what, whatnot, pop open. How about our listeners? Mm-hmm. What, yeah. kind, what have their experiences been? With doors and windows popping open in Cessna 150, 152s, let's let's hear some of those stories. Let's get some feedback from some of our listeners. And, it would be interesting and, to hear. In uh, a future episode, we'll uh, we'll try to regale some listeners uh, uh, with some of those stories. That would be great. I'll, I'll save mine, but le- le- you know, I'm going to save it, mine also. Okay. Yeah, yeah. But right. let it be said that you know this is a a, a, a serious it's question, right of, guys, because right, and it's people also have been known right to buy. Passage. People have been known to buy the farm. That's right. In response to a window, uh, door popping open at the wrong time, and yeah, uh, now, in, in a Cessna 150, 152, um, uh, yeah, it can happen. Um, larger, faster airplanes, um, twins, especially twins with with wing mounted engines, uh, sometimes get into situations where there's a a buffet. Uh, I think certain barons, depending on how they're loaded. Um, if the cabin door pops open, there's uh, uh, the yoke will kind of uh, vibrate a little bit or, or move fore and aft, and uh, there's some buffet in the elevator. Other airplanes may have other characteristics uh, when a door window pops open. The punchline in all that is to remember that the airplane is flyable. You still have to fly the airplane. It tell, might us, be la- tell us your stories, and we'll go into what to do next yeah, time. Yeah, it, it, perfect, perfect. Yeah, let's 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 try to get some additional material that on this and, and come back at this topic. That'd I think it's great. a good. Yeah. Send, send us email or even call the listener line and uh, call the listener line. Leave us a voicemail. Um, we'll uh, we'll do what we can to get this on in a in a future episode. Yeah. And same thing for anybody that might have attended AOPA Expo in Hartford last week. Since uh, feedback would be much appreciated because we're we're kind of at a disadvantage. We would very much like to hear uh, impressions of the show, what you thought was good, what you thought was bad. Yeah, we've we've, uh, which, we've which heard like the product news and a bunch of stuff, but uh-huh. you know what somebody was was feeling down on the floor would be really interesting. It really I would had be. A bu- I had a buddy of mine call me last week, actually, uh, saying, you know, do you know anything about this AOPA Expo up in Hartford? I said, well, yeah. Well, what's the deal? What, what do you what are you why are you asking? Well, he was an airline jockey, uh, uh, captain for um, uh, a major airline, quote unquote. Oh, I know and who it, you're talking about. And had gone into Bradley, nearby Bradley, and there was an Airbus A380 <laughs> on the ramp at Bradley. And the, the ATIS information at Bradley was talking about the AOPA show. And he's like, was the 380 part of the AOPA show? And I said, dude, I kind of <laughs> don't think so. But um, uh, stranger things have happened. I, I think it was just there. Uh, apparently it was... Uh, uh, very much a prototype. It had no interior or anything like that. But uh, uh-huh. only, only God knows what it was there for. Yeah, really. Well, they've been yeah. doing proving flights. That aircraft that came through here last week. I, I kind of think it. I, I kind of think it was proving flights, um, which makes a lot of sense. Yeah. But apparently, it was there. 
it was parked on the south, you know, on some remote part of the ramp, and it was just kind of sitting there. It wasn't really, you know, loading or unloading or getting fueled and going out. So, kind of makes me wonder what it was doing there. But I don't know. Maybe they were doing a pavement test. It was. And, it was know, waiting if, for if the, escargot. If, if if the if the airplane sits there for twenty four hours in the airport and the uh, the ramp doesn't buckle, we're we're good to go. I don't know. <laughs> oh, a tarmac test. That's right. A tarmac test. <laughs> one bit of uh, one story that did come out of uh, AOPA Expo, and uh, we've talked in the past about the uh, the troubles with uh, Lockheed Martin's uh, operation of the flight service station system. And uh, again, reading from an AvWeb story. Um, they write, uh, right up front, we'll say we've heard the same complaints about Lockheed Martin's handling of flight service station contract as everyone else. Long wait times, dropped calls, lost flight plans, briefers lacking local knowledge. My computer screen going to sleep. All right, here we go. Lacking local knowledge <laughs> of the areas they cover. Wait a uh, second. I don't see anything on this story about computer screens going to sleep. You yeah, made that up. I'm you re- made that up. I'm reading my own custom version. Lockheed Martin's Dan Coran, or Kurain, I'm not sure how you pronounce his name, uh, the company's VP of Aviation Services says he's gotten a similar earful, and at AOPA Expo on Thursday, Kurain told Avweb that Lockmart is doing something about it. It's hard to imagine. Specifically, <laughs> I'm shocked that this news is filtered down to him. Yeah, Go ahead. Specifically, uh, it has rewired the call waiting system to delay bumping calls from their origination area to other parts of the system, where briefers may be unfamiliar with local landmarks, airspacing conditions, further he says briefers are being given more generalized uh, training on airspace issues such as TFRs and the Washington ADIS, uh, into, when it, into which many of the pilots they brief may fly. Um, so, so, so Lockmart says, "Is this where situation's getting better?" Really, they promise. My, the thing I like, I, you know, I, I know we have at least one listener who's uh, an employee at Lockmart, a, a, a briefer, uh, or some sort of. Uh, specialist out there and so i don't mean to to uh, make light of something that's very serious to at least one of our listeners i'm sure many but my favorite bit about this little thing is that so they they're one of the ways they're trying to solve this problem is by changing the call waiting system so it delays bumping the calls from their origination area to some other area all right obviously the idea here is that you're more likely to get a briefer who knows the area you're calling from but the effect of this is longer hold times and i just don't know if that's like I don't know. Well, yeah, you know, I, I don't know. I, recently, I've had the opportunity to <clears throat> to uh, make a few flights and kind of be in a hurry and and you know need what I need from from flight service and and want to cut through the chaff and and um, uh, get my stuff and move on. Um, it's funny. I was in uh, I was in Georgia uh, a couple of weeks ago and and. Uh, uh, went through the you know what state are you or what state are you departing and i say georgia and the person who answers the phone is from leesburg virginia where i used to live mm-hmm. so um you know got, got my information got out of there and all this kind of thing um a year ago lock oh, earlier this year i should say it was Lockmart's service flight service station service was terrible it was uneven it was it was uh uh, sometimes unavailable. It was inaccurate on occasion. Uh, terrible is is as mild a term as I can apply to it. It has gotten more even. How should I? It is. It the unevenness has has uh, gone away. Um, it, is oh, it man, better? that's a straight line. Yeah, I know. For a zinger. And I'm thinking, no, I can't be beating up on Lockmart too much here. Okay. No, I, I don't. I don't want to beat up on him either. What I want to say is that. Um, what I have seen and received from Lockmart over the last month and a half, two months, um, has been uh, fairly consistent. It has been fairly good in that, you know, look, guys, this is what I need. Um, give it to me. Give it to me without any editorial comment. And and then let me you know ask you a few questions and we'll we'll conclude our little business transaction here and that has worked out fairly well um are we over the hump on this i don't think so <clears throat> because there's always going to be some new tweak some new technology that doesn't work or some new policy or or employee uh change a uh, personnel change or something like that that <clears throat> wreaks havoc on on us pilots who need flight service um Again, 
this is another area where some listener feedback would be very helpful, would be very informative for us. Um, uh, I'm, I've kind of taken to start using duets now to both, <clears throat> well, to specifically to file my flight plans because I'm no longer flying in or out of the ADAs in Washington now that I've relocated to Florida. So beforehand, I just did not trust duets to do my flight plans, mm-hmm. and that was, that was a wise, wise decision. Um, but I'll, uh, I'll try to automate my stuff a little, as much as I can nowadays. Uh, the punchline in all this is, yeah, I kind of do think maybe the, the, the peaks and valleys have evened out, and, and where we are now is above, uh, is higher than the valleys. Uh, but I'd like to get some feedback from some of our listeners on some of this also to kind of compare notes, if nothing else. Yeah. Well, and if I'm going to beat up on anything here, I'm going to beat up on this. To me, asinine idea that government can't do anything well and private industry inherently does it better when really all we're talking about is that private industry will do it cheaper for the people that work there and more profitable for the people that run it. Uh, I'm not anti-capitalist. I'm not anti-free enterprise. But I do think that some safety-oriented public services kind of defy that model. I feel that way about the police department, the fire department. I feel that way about FAA's air traffic control. And I feel that way about flight service. Flight service was not an exorbitantly expensive operation when it was part of the FAA. Some of that technology could have been adapted at a more at a more leisurely pace, and everybody would have complained. But the valleys would have been a lot shallower, based on how we've seen the FAA when they stumble along and do things at FAA time, uh, and don't trot out whole new systems in you know overnight, and then go, oh wow, we should have tested this. Uh, and the idea that. Cheaper and and free enterprise is always inherently superior to government has not been, in this instance, borne out by anything approaching reality. Now, that's just my two cents worth. Yeah, yeah. Um, There are a lot of things that that only government should be doing. Law enforcement is certainly one of them. In my book, uh, when you're talking about um, a situation where it is counterproductive for more than one entity uh, to be providing a certain service uh, to the public, um, it's probably best for government to be doing it. Air traffic control comes to mind as a great example of their need of a situation in which there needs to be one entity providing that service to the public. Um, uh, the the concept of trying to contract this out and uh, um, it, it extends to flight service. Um, the only way they're getting away with it on, at flight service is because um, basically the general aviation community doesn't it isn't large enough to have much political clout. Uh, if it were larger, this would not be on the table. Well, so. but did, we didn't. We didn't, as a community, and, and I'm speaking, you know, here primarily of the biggest voice in our community, uh, did not oppose this transition. They they endorsed it, if you know, it would do things like improve service and lower cost, so that in turn maybe GA pilots wouldn't have to pay as much fuel tax, and that's not been borne out. And I'd be really surprised if, if in the long term. This can be done profitably at the cost bid, and I expect to, you know that change will become manifest when it's time to do this contract over again. Uh, like I, I, Ian said, there are some services, there are some things that where you you need one provider, and uh, that in my mind shouldn't be you know uh, uh, subjected to the vagaries of the profit motive. Yeah. 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 Well, I don't know if this is a related story or not. Um, you hear about this uh, uh, Las Vegas uh, close call in the air story about we the. We did. Yeah. So this is a, a this is from a story in Aero News Net. Um, 
Uh, let's see now. The National Air Traffic Control Association told ANN Friday of an incident in the skies over Nevada Thursday in which an aircraft descending through 28,000 feet came within 2.6 miles of a second plane on converging flight paths. Both aircraft were being vectored for spacing into McCarran International Airport in Las Vegas just after 1300 local time during an especially busy time for the airport according to the controls union. Uh, the two planes, a Citation 750 and a Learjet 60, were under control of... The upshot here, is, and, and I, I, it's kind of a comp confused story if you ask me, but um, I, guess, I guess it was either a shift change or controllers coming and going from brakes or something like that, and uh, it sounds like one guy got overwhelmed because he was on a station by himself when theoretically, I guess he wasn't supposed to be. Do you guys know anything more about this, or do you no, understand the situation any better than I? I'm just looking at this. I mean, I understand the the uh, uh, the near miss or the the NMAC situation. Uh, 2.6 miles, TCAS and, and vectors. Uh, 2.6 miles uh, for those of for those of our listeners who uh, might think that that's you know uh, a pretty fur distance, as they say in the South. Um, uh, <laughs> 2.6 miles. It sh that's that's approaching about half of the, the what the separation should have been. Right, separation is supposed altitude. to be five, and you got converging traffic, which it at 28,000 feet and 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 descending, one of them, uh, you could have a closing speed here uh, of uh, close to a thousand miles an hour. Yeah, Think okay. how little time it takes to cover two and a half miles at a thousand miles an hour. Right. You know, yeah. they were on a converging; they weren't on a oncoming; they weren't head on, so it wasn't. A thousand miles an hour, but it could have been a uh, you know more than enough that that 2.8 miles or 2.6 miles got eaten up in you know less than a minute. Yeah, Here, here's very the, easily. Here's the paragraph that really caught my attention, um, and this is a quote from uh, this paragraph is a quote from the LA Center uh, Natca Facilities Representative Garth Kolazar. Again, I'm quoting from the Aero News Network article. Um, he said, uh, this is another example of the FAA trying to do too much with too little. He says, a controller returning to the work area had to take action on his own to assist the controller who was yelling for help. Unfortunately, he was too late and the traffic complexity had already reached extreme levels. The controller jumping in to help didn't even have time to receive a briefing on the sector traffic situation prior to the error. The FAA supervisor had left the work area moments before and had neglected to provide the controller with the needed help and uh, you know I mean I, I, I guess maybe it, you, you got to take that a little bit of grain of salt because it's the it's the pilots the controller union folks you know kind of trying to spin it their way but you know even discounting it a little bit that's a scary sounding situation yeah it is and um, uh, I, I'd like to know a little bit more about that and I'd, you know kind of like to hear the supervisor's side of that too I mean well, from the, you guys uh, perspective this we're not this is not just posturing they they are short-handed out there is that true that's true well short-handed um, yes here's, here's quick, what's happening. Quick answer there are too few people ideally there are too few people working the scopes uh, at, at any given air traffic control facility. Um, and in my experience, a lot of the people at some facilities, and I've noticed I'm using vague terms here, uh, a lot of the people at some facilities are not what I would consider full performance level, whether that term applies to their specific position or not. Um, I know there's a guy at, at a certain tower that I used to to uh, go in and out of a lot. When there were two airplanes in his Delta, he lost it. Okay, forget forget the idea of of you know three or four people trying to come or go to this from that airport at the same time or land on multiple runways. If there were two people, uh, um, two aircraft moving at the same time in his airspace, he couldn't handle it. And he shouldn't, in my mind, shouldn't have been anywhere near a microphone, much less an air traffic control tower. But uh, be that as it may, um, yes, there is a there is a personnel shortage um, that manifests itself most significantly during peak periods. Uh, during non-peak periods, um, it's not that big a problem. Um, how do they? How do you staff for these peak periods? 
how do you manage the staff you have to to uh, uh, use them more efficiently and more effectively? Um, that's a topic that the FAA has never proven any any uh, competence at answering. But the peak periods um, are not unpredictable, right? I no, mean, absolutely not. Uh, they're published schedules. Yeah, I mean, they're the they're all a result of, of the air tra- airline schedules, right? I mean, for the most part, predominantly, yeah. yeah. Now, before exactly. we lose this, before we leave this, it bears pointing out that in the Aero News Net story, uh, a spokesman for the Western Region Office of the FAA. Uh, completely disputes what the NATCA guy said. Uh, he says that the position was fully staffed, the routine number of aircraft in the sector, and he writes it off to even good controllers occasionally make mistakes. Uh, when they do, we have multiple layers of safety in place to protect the traveling public. That's all well and good. On this one, you know, it, it, it's it, it, there's a little bit more than a he said, she said that well, we don't have the details on. We don't. Two, two, two thoughts here in reading the last two graphs in this story. One, um, they brought on 1,700 new controllers during fiscal year 2007, which, of course, not coincidentally, just ended on September 30. Right. Uh, this, <clears throat> this particular FAA spokesperson <clears throat> uh, says that they have about 14,800 controllers nationwide compared to about 14,600 a year ago. In other words, they've, they've added a net of 200 controllers after hiring 1,700, which means 1,500 have gone away through retirements, job changes, promotions, whatever. Um, the there's, a, there's a caveat that's got to be added here. Now, here's the caveat. The 1,700 new controllers are just that. They're new controllers. They're yeah. developmental, they call them. They won't exactly. be FPL, full propor- performance level, for at least three years. That's, that's, there's 1,500 controllers, experienced controllers, we, we presume. We can, let's, presume that, let's, let's presume only half of them were experienced controllers, okay? In other words, FPL's been working, uh, been, been working the, uh, a facility and, and checked out on various sectors for several years. That's 750 uh, experienced controllers waving bye-bye, no longer working the scopes, and 200 uh, new controllers to replace them. Um, that doesn't give me a warm fuzzy, mm-hmm. uh, okay? No. Uh, and and, this and is, it's this not a matter of it's not a matter of bodies or people standing behind the mic. I can I can go out on the street here and and uh, I can find a lot of people who'd be happy to stand in an air traffic control tower and make however much an hour these controllers make. That's not the point. The point is experience and and training right. and and can they handle. Um, when 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 the uh, when the when the air traffic control situation soils the bed, shall we say, can they handle the flow? Can they handle the stress? Can they handle the workload? And um, I've certainly seen uh, my share of, of uh, I'll call them kids who can't, but um, it's it's you know almost facility dependent. Um, gaining only two hundred controllers net in one fiscal year does not give me a warm fuzzy. No, because we haven't reached the peak of the retirement bubble that's coming. That's right. Uh, and I, several good friends of mine are air traffic controllers, uh, working in both management and, and on the scopes. Uh, interestingly enough, when you get them off to the side and, and in a social situation, the story that management tells, not for attribution, off the record, all hush-hush, nod, nod, wink, wink, is not differentiated greatly from what the from what the union guys are saying yeah, yeah. Uh, that is yeah we're making our numbers but the reason they're making their numbers is because the FAA rewrote the numbers a couple of years ago about the time it imposed a final solution on the controllers contract dispute uh, so we've got new numbers that are lower for all these facilities around the country because supposedly technology is taking up the slack. In the meantime, we've got fewer eyes working longer hours, more shifts over time to make the new lower numbers. That, mm-hmm. Does that sound like a formula for success to you mm-hmm. when you've got to have more overtime 
to meet the staffing needs of even lower numbers? Yeah. Guys, I mean, come on. It, it is not rocket science to look at the logic of this and say, this ain't freaking working right. Right. Yeah. So what can what can we regular, everyday, you know, $100 hamburger pilots do to, to try and help fix this problem? Or are we just along for the ride? Well, we're not just along for the ride. Not, it's a circuitous route to get this done. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's it's uh, from an operational standpoint, uh, it's the same old, same old. Know what you're doing. Uh, be on top of your game, um, unless there's a legitimate reason for it. Um, don't play twenty questions with a controller, um, and and um, just you know know what you're doing. Uh, some of that can only come from experience. Some of that comes from just not talking, but listening to what's going yeah. on around you. Um, we can, you know, talk about some of this with, uh, you know, our elected officials. We can. Uh, yeah, that's where it really needs to be pushed. Yeah, we can. We can talk about this with media. Uh, uh, you know, if we're at the local airport and, and there's a camera and a, and a microphone standing nearby. Uh, you know, talk about how great aviation is, but you know, we've we've got problems. We've got uh, a shortage of air traffic controllers. We've got uh, um, you know too many airplanes, too many airliners, I should say, trying to go into too many airports, trying to go in the same airport at the same time. Uh, th- these kinds of things are are the things that we can try to address on a one-on-one basis. Uh, it's it's retail politics. It's is retail aviation for that matter. But it's it's necessary if we're going to keep things rolling. Yeah, absolutely. Well, once again, we're reaching the end of our allotted time here. We're going to get to oh no, and, and we still got a whole bunch of things on the list here. We're going to push Dude. some of them next week here. Dave, you pu- you put a thing on the list about the uh, Florida Aviation Museum. Yeah, our good friends down at Sun and Fun uh, are hosting uh, an exhibit through the sponsorship of uh, uh, our other friends at Aircraft Owners and Pilots Association called. It's a special photographic exhibit called At the Controls, and it's going to be on exhibit there through November 25th. Uh, It is a collection of very large prints of aircraft cockpits Hmm. in in the Smithsonian Air and Space Museum collection. Uh, I've had the pleasure of hearing the photographer whose name I don't currently remember but he spoke eric to my F. long and mark eric long F. thank you, you. I, I heard eric speak to my aviation photography uh group the international society of aviation photographers uh, uh three or four years ago i guess three or three years ago now uh when he was uh well into this project uh, we're talking about something that took months and months of shooting yeah. Yeah. Uh, because a lot of these cockpits could only be lighted properly and shot when the museum was closed because that's the only where place there was an exhibit, you know, uh, an article and exhibit in existence. I'll get it out in a minute. Uh, but they, they've also shot cockpits from some of the airplanes that are not on public display. Uh, uh, they are works of art, many of these airplane cockpits yeah uh, the, 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 we'll put a link up in the uh, in our show notes uh, the um, the lead image on the website uh, at Sun and fun that, that is promoting this particular show is of the Enola gay cockpit um, years ago when the Enola gay was in pieces uh, at the Silver Hill, Maryland uh, facility of the Air and Space Museum. That's their restoration uh, center. That, that was their restoration center, exactly. Um, they would give tours <clears throat> um, to uh, uh, the public. Uh, you had to schedule it in advance, um, and it was a limited number of people that could go through, but uh, you could go through their restoration facility and uh, uh, view the works in progress, um, get literally up close and personal. I don't know that you could touch anything, but you could certainly get closer to some of these artifacts and some of these aircraft than you can now. I had the good fortune to um, get up close and personal with the Enola Gay. At the time, it was in at least, the fuselage, I should say, was in at least two or three large pieces. The forward portion of the fuselage, basically uh, from forward of the wings uh, to the the cockpit, was one piece. 
yeah. and it was complete. It was completely open, and you, there's 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 this huge round tube, and you walk up to it, and you can see all the way through it, all the way to the cockpit, and um, uh, that was just uh, uh, I'll never forget that. I had somewhere I have some slides. Uh, this was this being back in the '80s or early '90s, well, well before digital. Somewhere I have some color slides of all that and uh, uh, um, the original paint uh, on the fuselage, the, the condition of the fuselage at that time, and and all of this kind of thing. It was just just fascinating, and re- still to me is fascinating. Sounds and cool. now the whole completed restored bird right. is on display at the Udvar-Hazy Center at uh, Dulles right. Airport. Right. Uh, but it, it's a it's a hell of an exhibition of photographs. Uh, just some some stunning, stunning cockpit design. Uh, absolute works of art. Some of the woodwork and leather, and the antique instruments, and some of the older airplanes. Uh, if you're in the vicinity of Lakeland, Florida, uh, you know check the uh, Florida Museum uh, Aviation Museum uh, uh, open and close hours through the uh, sunandfun.org website. Um, but it's definitely worth uh, a, a little bit of your time if you are interested in or fascinated by this kind of stuff like like many of us are. Absolutely. And that entire museum is open year-round, right? I mean, it's not just, That's correct, not right? just this one exhibit, um, and it's not just a sun and fun you know, time of year thing. It's a, no, no. And, uh, they, they're also the repository of the uh, uh, papers of Howard Hughes. And they've got people working on that. Uh, they've got a fascinating collection of uh, of of experimental aircraft uh, that uh, helped launch the museum from their uh, uh, location there at uh, Sun and Fun. It started out as a Sun and Fun museum and has evolved into something larger than Sun and Fun itself. So uh, check them out. Uh, you won't be sorry. And uh, you know, if you if you go and see it and like it, be sure and uh, send kudos. Uh, AOPA's way because they helped underwrite the uh, exhibition there. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Anything else on the list we don't want to push off till next week? Just happy 50th. Happy 50. Yeah. Congratulations, guys. It's been a blast. We're not nearly it done. Has. We're not nearly done yet. No, 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 we're just starting close. to hit stride. 100. Right. 100. Here we come. That's right. Well, well you know. and we should hit 100 pretty clo- closer to our second anniversary. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, well, uh, yeah. Probably just a little bit after it. I mean, depending oh, on how many. Yeah, a little bit after. We start doing multiple issue episodes around Sun and Fun and and, they, they, uh, and Oshkosh they, maybe, but uh, they, they told me no ma- There would be no math tonight. <laughs> Dave's the only one who's capable of doing math because he's without the beer tonight. <laughs> so, oh man! So we should have relied. On, whatever Dave says is fine. Whatever you say, Dave. I miss my lineys. <laughs> You can learn more about Dave and his work at uh, his website, DaveHigdon.com. Take a look at all his great aviation pictures and learn about his writing and all sorts of other good stuff. Jeb, you can learn more about Jeb at JebBurnside.com. Also, uh, see some of his writing and editing at AviationSafetyMagazine.com and AvWeb.com. And myself at my personal website, JackHodgson.com or AroundTheField.net. And uh, check out uh, what all of us are up to at the Uncontrolled Airspace website at UncontrolledAirspace.com. So uh, thank you, everyone, for joining us this evening in the virtual hangar, and we'll talk to you all again next time. TTFN. Shiny side up, folks. (laughs) 